4: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Daily Roto Hour here on Sports Grid TV. I'm Davis Maddock, joined today by Ricky Sanders, and it is our Monday morning, so that means that uh, everyone is only talking about and thinking about one thing, Ricky, which is episodes 9 and 10 of The Last Dance. We saw the Chicago Bulls win their fateful championship. We saw Michael Jordan retire, though though no clips of him as a member uh, of the washington wizards which i was uh, a little disappointed about so the last dance has uh, has come to an end how are we how are we feeling about here at the end
5: I feel like I have a lot more of the full context of Michael Jordan, and we kind of heard that by the end you might not like Michael because of his demeanor, and I just think this documentary made me love him more. I mean, that like killer mentality of him always wanting to win and just showing like what it takes to be the best at your profession, it motivates me to kind of think like that, even if I'm writing an article, doing a podcast, anything like it. Uh, Is just to try and be the best and always find something that can motivate you. So, my feeling was it was like you know watching an M Night Shyamalan movie where you were waiting for the end where you're like, okay, now I'm gonna like dislike this guy, and it never came. And I just I thought it was excellent. I thought the final two episodes were probably the ones I enjoyed the most. It might have been because they it was the ending, um, but you know, the whole Reggie Miller thing and finding out how stacked that team was. I completely forgot. I mean, the names on that team were ridiculous. There's just so much I have to say. But basically, the summary would be, I still love Michael Jordan.
4: Yeah, and I mean, you know, I I think that a lot of the people aren't going to like me stuff got overblown because Michael Jordan had you know, an editorial hand in this documentary. Like there were, there were certainly instances uh, where things, you know, nasty could have been said about Michael Jordan. There were a lot of moments of his career that were skipped over where he didn't look so great. Like, you know, there were games against the Pistons where he just outright played bad and you know even in the 1998 season like there were fair criticisms you could have about michael jordan and the way he was playing the game you know for example that game six uh i i've been going to the basketball reference for all of these games that they go really in depth on and just trying to get a sense of you know the minutes played and you know what guys were shooting and everything so that game six where michael jordan makes the amazing shot against the jazz you know clinches it he shot 35 times in that game. The second most field goal attempts on the Bulls was Tony Kukoc with 14. He made exactly half of his shots, including including uh, uh, both of his three-point shots he made. So, you know, there were... Michael's like, you know, I, I was making all the plays, and, you know, everyone was... You know, I'm so exhausted. Well, I mean, he didn't have to be that tired, right? Like, it's not like Kukoc wasn't a good player. It's not like Kukoc couldn't have eased that burden for him a little bit. So I, I think that there are... You know, I, I think that there are some really interesting ways that you can choose to interpret this documentary because you can't come away with it not being impressed by Michael Jordan, right? Like he is even more of a force of nature, even more of you know just a a competitor, a guy who was willing to to give it his all. But you know that doesn't mean that he was a perfect human being. It doesn't mean that he was always you know uh, an impeccable basketball player. You know what I
5: mean? Yeah, exactly, and. So not to go on like a pivot, but when you're talking about him not being a perfect human being, I think one thing that like all of us were thinking with him smoking cigars the whole time is like, how does this guy continue to be a top tier athlete and have a cigar like once a day? I mean, I don't know about you, but I had I eat one wrong thing. And I go on a Peloton and it's like a 10-minute difference or, you know, uh, a difference that way. So I don't know how Michael Jordan was able to sustain that. But that's kind of, you know, a sidetrack. He wasn't perfect. He, He had a lot, you know, underneath the surface, but you see with the media like how pressing that was. I can't even imagine what it's like today to be LeBron James versus what it's like to be Michael Jordan. Because Michael Jordan, he had to deal with the media, but once he was able to sneak out the door, once he was able to get on the team bus... People were still talking about him, but if he didn't turn on the TV, he didn't have to see it. I mean, with social media, Michael Jordan would not have been able to escape it, sort of like LeBron isn't. So in a sense, I mean, you can understand with these superstars on a level where if you don't watch a documentary, you're just like, why is this guy, you know, nixing the media? But just seeing how the media is always all over him, you can kind of understand where he gets that thought process.
4: I mean, yeah, I think uh, as Michael Jordan, you can definitely see why he developed such a prickly relationship with the media. Right. Like and and, um, you know, he was treated maybe not unfairly, but he was definitely treated pretty harshly when he retired and and went to go do his minor league baseball adventure. Like, I I think that we can say that pretty comfortably. I want to talk more about that ninety seven, ninety eight. Indiana Pacers team. So they have Reggie Miller, you know, Hall of Famer, absolutely great player. Um, Rick Smits, you know, who is uh, an all star, you know, just a, again, you know, another another great NBA center at a time when you, you needed a great NBA center. They have the uh, the Davis twins. Uh, so Dale Davis and Antonio Davis, Chris Mullen, uh, you know, a, a Hall of Fame player. Now he's towards the end of his career when he's there, but he is you know one of the best shooters. And this is really at a time before floor spacing is valued. We have Mark Jackson, who is, you know, uh, another, another great player, you know, led the league in assists, uh, was an all-star, like, you know, an all-star. I mean, this team is crazy good. They, they won a lot. They won a lot of games that year. You know, they, they went, they won 58 games that year. The next year, uh, that was the strike sort the strike shortened year, but they won 56 games another two years later. Like it, it kind of sucks for the Pacers that, uh, you know when they when they were at their best, they ran up against the best team to ever play.
5: I honestly like my jaw dropped when I saw all the talent that was on this Pacers team because I did not remember that because Reggie was like, "Yeah, we had Rick Smiths." And if you've ever played NBA Jam, like you obviously remember the Reggie Miller, Rick Smiths duo. Yep. But then Mark Jackson was one of the NBA leaders in assists. I mean, you kind of I didn't even mention the... Jalen Rose. Jalen Rose, exactly. I was going to go there. And it's funny because you look at this team from, like, a fantasy per, per, uh, perspective, no one on this team averaged more than 31 FanDuel fantasy points a game. Rick Smith yeah. was your leader at 30, which is just shows how deep this team was. It was, I'm trying to think of, like, a comparison these days with a team that maybe, uh, like, a healthy uh, Clippers, Clippers team. The Clippers, yeah. I think. Yeah, like a healthy Clippers team where you just don't know if it's going to be a Paul George night, a Kawhi Leonard night. Maybe neither because the bench gets hot and you get Lou Williams and Montrez Harrell. That feels like what this team must have been. I'm happy there was no Daily Fantasy then because there was so much talent and, like, obviously anyone could go off at any point. And, like, if you didn't have Reggie Miller and he was having a slow game, you still had to worry about fourth quarter Reggie Miller. Uh, but, yeah, this team, it feels like a team that should have won a championship looking at the roster.
4: Yeah, I would actually kind of compare them to some of those teams that kept running up against the Miami Heat. Like, actually, you know, actually kind of like the uh, mid-2010s. Pacers actually, they kept running into LeBron. Um, you know, just just all those teams that have had to had that have had to run into LeBron over the course of his career. You know, like a lot of those Celtics teams, like you know they the you know and 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 for the for the West, you know there were a lot of teams that were held down by the greatness of the Oklahoma City Thunder. So like you know the the Trailblazers and stuff, like that things would have been more open for them to make finals appearances had the Oklahoma City Thunder uh, not existed. And you know I think that uh i think people forget how good reggie miller is you know like i i think that reggie miller gets thought of sort of as like uh like a spot up shooter like actually kind of like what happened to ray allen where people forget that reggie miller had some insane seasons he averaged um over 20 points a game in six different seasons you know was a, was a good passer like reggie reggie miller no doubt no doubt hall of famer has some of the best clutch shots in nba history really and like i don't know he just he seems like one of those guys who for whatever reason you know just get just gets thrown in the mix i guess because he was never as good as michael
5: yeah it feels like ray allen is like way highly more highly regarded because he's got the championships um but in terms of their shooting ability i don't think it's that crazy of a difference and i mean reggie miller in the playoffs just had some massive massive years like that Uh, 97, 98, about 20 points a game, which was when the team was loaded. But you look at the years around that. He had a year where he was 29 points per game Uh, in the playoffs. I guess that was a one-game sample. But here's one with 31 points per game in a series. Uh, There was one earlier where he had 31 points in a series. So in games where he was the number one scoring option, he shot the ball extremely well over a 44 basically a 45% field goal percentage in the playoffs. When you look at some Michael Jordan games, like it's that makes it look pretty good, seeing all the games that Michael Jordan shot below 40%. Yeah, I, I don't think Reggie Miller gets his props, and it's because he kept having to run into Michael Jordan.
4: Reggie Miller, in his age 39 season, played 31 minutes a night for the Pacers and scored 14 points a game. Like that as a 39 year old, like that's crazy, right? Like that's just, uh, that's absolutely wild stuff. Um, another thing that happened during that series is Pippen misses the potential, uh, game winning free throw and misses twice and, and gives the Pacers a chance. And, uh, you know, just, a, another, another example of Pippen, uh, Pippen should have been very glad to play when he did and where he did and with who he did, because, Social media would have uh, would have just been brutal to this guy. Like people, like he would have he would have been, you know, just as sort of castigated as like Dwight Howard had some of this stuff in his career happened. Ah, uh, you know, during the the Twitter Instagram era.
5: Can you imagine like the barstool memes of or videos rather of like guys smashing their TV after the Pippin free throws? I mean, I could just see what it would be like if that happened today. And exactly. I mean, Pippen was bailed out playing with Michael Jordan. And I hate to use that terminology, but I mean, playing next to someone who was so great, you could make mistakes and it just wouldn't matter because Michael would do anything, literally anything to win. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think this documentary did a great job of highlighting like the parts where they could have lost and like actual failures. And then, you know, Michael Jordan basically coming to the rescue, which seems like it's overblown and like too perfect of a narrative. But that's really what happened time and time again with these Bulls teams.
4: Oh, one of the one of the great moments. I don't think I will. I don't think I'll ever forget this one. So Michael's sitting there pregame with his security guards and Ahmad Rashad and, and Ahmad Rashad says, you know, some can. Some can't. Michael goes, Yeah, you know, I kinda kinda like that. Some can, some can't. And then he thinks for a second, he's like, keep a mod shot away from Scotty Burrell. He'll he'll scare Scotty. <laughs> there's no there's no way Scotty Burrell is built to handle the the possibility of thinking, you know, uh some some can, some can't. You know, poor Scotty Burrell. No one I, I actually, you know, I looked this up because I just I just wondered. He played one year. He played one year with the Bulls, and it was it was this year. It was the last dance. He barely played. You know, he played, I guess he played 10 minutes uh in that game six against the Jazz, and that was because Pippen was injured. But like, you know, he just is a total bench player, and uh, you know, poor poor Scotty Burrell. He just he caught more strays in this than pretty much anyone else.
5: I mean, he did have that 20-point game, but yeah, that, this must have been the worst year of his life. Just always going to practice, always having Michael giving him crap and like even when michael knew he was gonna leave he's like scotty i better not catch you in a bar i'm gonna whoop your ass <laughs> i yeah. thought that was so, fantastic
4: it was it was fantastic we are going to continue our discussion of the last dance here on the daily roto hour on sports grid tv when we get back here in uh, just a few moments on the uh the other side of break
6: daily learn from the game's best dfs players we don't just give you premier advice
2: To start listening.
4: Hello, everyone, and welcome back from break here on the Daily Roto Hour on Sports Grid TV. I'm Davis Maddock, joined by Ricky Sanders as we break down episodes 9 and 8, the, the final recap of The Last Dance, ESPN's Michael Jordan documentary that has now reached its conclusion. Uh, you know, I thought I thought um, of the whole documentary, you know, the whole 10 hours, Ricky, I thought that the Steve Kerr discussion was really probably you know the the best part, kind of the the most human element of uh, of the discussion. You know, how what was your what was your reaction to, you know, Kerr? Not a, of course, you know, talking about his dad and everything, but also, you know, really discussing uh you know what what it's like to be a role player.
5: Yeah, I mean Steve Kerr's been one of my favorite human beings for a while. So I always just love listening to him talk, whether it's about basketball, whether it's about life. Um, but the self-deprecating nature of Steve Kerr was excellent. Um, the emotional side of Steve Kerr, which I don't think I've really seen before outside of him like celebrating championships, I haven't really seen him get low like that. Uh, with the moments about his dad, was awesome. But I liked. I think the self, de- you know, deprecating part was my favorite, where he was talking about like up until then, like it was like my high school era where I. Girls weren't interested in me. Colleges weren't interested in me. And then he grew. And I find that hard to believe, by the way. Like, that's definitely him underselling himself. You don't just get an offer from Arizona and no one else. Like, that doesn't happen. So I think he was kind of rewriting his own history to sound, you know, I don't know what the word is, uh, worse than he was. But I still enjoyed that whole part. And I knew nothing of his father in Beirut. And just that that was – probably the hardest part other than Michael's dad passing away to watch of the the whole documentary. So Steve Kerr there was there was so many emotions mixed with just the small time he was on camera, but I thought I agree with you. This was some of the most in, intriguing TV of the whole what was it 10 hours.
4: Yeah. So I think uh the the really big thing to take away from Kerr talking and you know we can talk a little bit about uh, I mean it's very funny of of you know Kerr of that that defining shot and, you know, MJ kind of mumbles to him, you know, Steve, Steve, be ready. And oh, uh, what what? I guess one of the coolest things about this documentary is where these guys are having these memories. So, like, they're talking about something that happened 20 years ago and they're kind of having the vague memory. But they have all the footage, you know, all this footage exists in, in you know, great film resolution. So, so Kerr has this memory of talking to michael jordan before he's about to take this amazing shot and mike goes oh you know come on be ready to take the shot and Kerr's like oh i probably you know i'm i'm all enthusiastic and then they they cut back to the actual footage and you can see you know mike mike covers his mouth and he's drinking the gatorade and then you literally hear Kerr yelling like okay mike i'll be ready i'm ready to go like that is i mean that to me that was the best part of the documentary to me like i just thought that was a A great moment from Michael, a great moment from Kerr, a great moment from Phil Jackson, and like just really at the heart of what the documentary was trying to get to.
5: Yeah, as someone who always needs their fiancé to, like, point out to you when you're doing something, like, socially unacceptable, it's really funny to watch that Steve Kerr moment where, like, he probably thought he was just, like, answering him, but he was so excited that Michael was like, actually, you may have to take this shot, that he just ends up yelling, like, Brick Tamlin from, you know, Anchorman, just like, loud noises! And that's how it came out, but I really did appreciate that part where you hear the guys talking about it, And you could know which ones were kind of full of crap and which weren't because they would like you would see them talking about it and they would immediately go to the film of it happening. So, yeah, Steve Kerr just being like an awkward individual and then hitting the shot was was one of the more entertaining moments. Uh, I, I, as a, you know, awkward human being in my own right, really appreciated that.
4: Yeah, I just I think so much of what Kerr has to say is, you know, so eloquent and so, you know, well thought about. Like, I can see from watching this documentary, why he's such a good basketball coach and why, you know, why him and Steph Curry have bonded so much. And I, and I think even I'm actually, um, just getting ready to read Ethan Sherwood Strauss's book, uh, the victory machine about the golden state warriors. And I'm, you know, I'm excited to read more of what Kerr has to say and more about Steve Kerr in that book. But I would also imagine that, you know, kind of him being so thoughtful about those things is also why, You know, Draymond gets along with him and and why Kevin Durant, who doesn't seem to get along with anyone, did at least get along with Kerr while he was in Golden State.
5: Yeah. And I mean, just him talking about like how academics were important in his family kind of shows me why a lot of times like the star players are not the best coaches. It's the role players who have to do all the thinking to even get on the court because they're so much less talented. Like Michael Jordan didn't have to do a ton of a ton of thinking, at least not as much compared to the guys like the John Paxons, the Scotty Burrells, the Steve Kerr's, because they only had such limited opportunity and they were so much less of athletes than Michael Jordan was that it just shows why role players in basically all sports tend to be the better managers.
4: Yeah, I I think that's true. You know, the more you have to think about what you're doing and the less intuitive it is, the better you're going to be at helping someone else do it. I mean, this is a, this is such a common thing in sports where the truly great players get frustrated coaching because they're like, Okay, yeah, go and uh, do this really complex and really difficult thing and I'm not going to tell you how to do it. I'm just you're just going to go do it cuz I was able to do it. And then the player is not able to do it and then they just get frustrated because uh, you know, they're better than everyone else and their players tend to not be, you know, near as good. So, I, you know, one of the most jarring things about watching all these old highlights is uh a lot of these shots that not only that MJ was taking but that the Jazz were taking that his teammates were taking these are shots that we would consider now to be bad. Like if you took this shot, like people would be would be groaning and your coach would be like, you know, what what's that? That's uh that's not our strategy. And I think the best example of this was the game 1 game winner in the 97 finals by Michael Jordan. He's out on the three-point line against against uh, Byron Russell and he dribbles he takes a dribble he gets russell off his feet and then he purposely gets in to the he takes he goes from outside the three point line in to take like a 19 footer and he makes it and they win the game but like that would be universally considered a bad shot now
5: yeah i mean just inside the three-point line is where basically NBA coaches don't want you shooting unless you're someone like a Lamarcus Aldridge. You have to have a very specific skill set, and even then, I think you know coaches would prefer like to get the ball in deep to Lamarcus Aldridge where he's even more comfortable. So I I agree with that. The thing with Michael Jordan was he had a clear plan where you can't even fault him for it. Where he said that B- Brian Russell was playing him on his toes, so he knew if he hit him with the crossover, he wasn't going to be able to change direction and he just reacted to the situation with limited time now I'm sure if Michael could have gotten in deeper he would have preferred that but knowing how the defense was set up I think you have to give him a pass for it even though it wasn't a great shot it was the right player taking the shot and he had a clear plan so I don't think even Phil Jackson would be like you know we weren't okay with him shooting that as long as Michael told me you know why he was comfortable taking that shot I think they would have been absolutely okay with it
4: Uh, yeah. I mean, I think, I think that is definitely true, but I mean, you know, Phil Jackson definitely bucked against the trend of three pointers. Like, you know, when, when he took over when he took over the Knicks, he was, he was definitely, uh, you know, how's it going? Remember, do you remember (laughs) that tweet? I I will never forget that. It's been, it's been so long. Uh, but I, I just remembered that like Phil Jackson was one of the people who was like, you don't need three pointers to win. And I, I think, you know, I think there's definitely an element of Phil Jackson thinks high more highly of himself than he should because he got to coach Shaq and Kobe and Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen, and he never really had to play a mathematically optimal version of basketball.
5: Well, and things change. I mean, leagues become more run-heavy, more pass-heavy. As the rules change, we've seen that with football. As defensive backs have not been able... To pressure guys without getting penalties called, it's become a more pass-happy league. So guys who ran you know, the wishbone offense in the 1930s would have just no chance coaching in the 2020s. And I think the same is true with Phil Jackson as the game has become more three-point centric and there's, there's more metrics. I mean, anyone could probably have coached with Michael Jordan. We saw Doug Collins do a pretty darn good job there. But you get a lesser talented roster and you have to figure out how to optimize it. And because Phil Jackson had just played amongst multiple superstars, he had a tough time adjusting. So I think games evolve. I will never, ever think that Phil Jackson was a bad coach because he couldn't figure out things with the Knicks. But it's pretty clear that his idea for the league had passed time. And I think that's all there really is to say about Phil. I don't think it's a good thing. I don't think it's a bad thing. I just think it's the realization of the situation
4: so I you know kind of one thing that uh, i want to I want to come back I want to come back to Kerr and talk about this, which is that, you know, in the in the regular season, you're only taking five shots a game as a role player, right? You know, Kerr, Kerr's taking five shots a game, playing 20 minutes. He doesn't have he doesn't have the ball in his hands all that often. But when you're a role player in the playoffs, that means those five shots a game that you're taking, those are the biggest shots of your life. And I and I think that the ability to play the same in the finals as a role player that you do in the regular season, that's got to be one of the most underrated skill sets in all of professional sports.
5: Completely agree. The shooters who just have to rely on their muscle memory, especially when they're facing more difficult opponents. uh, I think because you only get those five shots, that's where the mental aspect comes in to being one of these role players to know when to shoot and when not not to shoot. Knowing that the team probably only wants you to take five shots because you may be getting these open three point looks. I mean, for Steve Kerr, you're taking open three point looks, but you may be, you know, a modern power forward and getting these open three point looks, and it doesn't mean you want to shoot 10, ten of them, uh, because you know your team has some better players elsewhere who should be running the offense. So it's kind of a underrated aspect of the game is like. Finding the, the spots to take your shots and knowing when too many uh, will actually hurt your team. And Steve Kerr, being the role player and the, the thinker that he was, did a great job. When when he was called upon, he shot. Uh, we saw him in the highlights, by the way, which I, I was unaware of, that he was a pretty good ball handler. He was bringing up yeah. the ball a ton of the time with Michael Jordan. I thought he was just your pure uh, off-ball shooter There was more to his game than that. We saw it in the highlights. So having that to his game, having the shooting aspect, I think it was all very impressive. I don't think you can come away from this documentary thinking anything other than highly of Steve Kerr.
4: Yeah. You know, I I think that is kind of an interesting thing is Kerr very much a background character in the, the legend of Michael Jordan. But in this documentary, he becomes, I think, one of the central characters because he He's got some great stories, you know, him and Michael, him and Michael got into the fight, which I, I thought yep. was, uh, you know, a, a huge element of the documentary. And of all the people that Michael talks about, you know, he's got he's got his he doesn't say much about Rodman, says a little about Pippen, you know, he's dis- disappointed in Pippin when he doesn't come in against the Knicks. But, you know, mostly has just kind things to say about Pippin. But I mean, you you can kind of sense like. Some real admiration for Kerr of being like, you know, Kerr's dad died, like, like my dad died. We never talked about it. I'm sure those guys, you know, they they don't talk about their their feelings all that much in the Bulls locker room. But I thought that was, I thought that the relationship between those two was uh was pretty cool. So we're gonna go ahead and head to break here at the Daily Roto Hour on Sports Grid TV. When we get back in just a few moments, we are gonna continue our discussion of ESPN's The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan documentary. See you guys then
2: to start listening.
4: Hello, everyone, and welcome back from break here on the Daily Roto Hour on SportsGrid TV. I'm Davis Maddock, joined by Ricky Sanders today as we continue our breakdown of ESPN's The Last Dance, uh, the Michael Jordan documentary that just ended on Sunday night. Episodes 9 and 10 are mostly what we are discussing. A big observation I have about playing the Utah Jazz, Ricky, Uh, John Stockton looks like an accountant, right? Like, he, he he really does just look like a guy who could just be walking down the street, doing your, you know, bagging your groceries, right? Like, and uh, I, I thought it was very admirable how he was like, you know what? I was never afraid of the Bulls. Like, because I think a lot of people definitely were afraid of the Bulls, right? Like, with, with no doubt in my mind, a big part of playing the Bulls was you just were not able to mentally get over that hurdle and and i think that the jazz were like it didn't seem like they ever lost to the bulls because they weren't mentally tough enough it's just they you know they just got outplayed by just a little bit
5: yeah and have you seen what john stockton was listed at when he was playing i mean like six five nine six one 170 pounds
3: this is right. not
5: like a huge dude i mean like six ones taller than i am but 170 pounds? I mean, I've got quite a bit of weight on where John Stockton was in his playing days. So I admired John Stockton speaking like that. And by the way, he wasn't the only guy who looked like an accountant on that team. Jeff Hornacek, if you were to just see like a, a picture of his face, he was definitely yep. the, the, the second member of that accounting firm. Uh, but it's weird because they didn't really touch on the fact that John Stockton was injured for a while in that 98 season. Uh, it actually was a down year. It was the beginning of, I don't want to call it a down tick, uh, but he had such a long stretch of double digit assist seasons and he got injured that year. And that was the end of it. I mean, ten and a half assists the year before, and then it was eight and a half in that 98 year. And he never got above 8.7 again. And he played until he was 40. I mean, so he played even older than, uh, we when we were talking about with Reggie Miller, but I mean that Stockton and Malone duo. You saw some of those passes. I forgot who it was who said that that was the greatest pass he had ever seen a point guard thing. Was that David Aldridge who said that? I, yeah,
4: I I think it was Aldridge. Might have been J. A. Adande. It's I, I didn't I I I made a note in my I made a note while while watching the show that I thought that was a Mahomesian level pass, which is pretty crazy.
5: Yeah, I mean I when he first threw it, I was like, okay, it's just like a full court pass. Like Kevin Love makes these all the time. But the fact that Malone like changed shoulders and it led him perfectly to the basket over two defenders, like I saw where he was coming from, but there were a bunch of other bounce passes to get Carl Malone open. And we talk about how fun it must have been playing with Michael Jordan, but how about playing with a passer like John Stockton to make your to make your baskets that much easier? Like I think if Carl Malone were playing with a a point guard like a George Hill or someone who is more scoring oriented, you might've seen Malone average instead of like 28 points per game in a bunch of seasons, like somewhere around 20. I mean, we've seen that in NBA DFS when the point guard is out, people just assume the usage is going to go elsewhere. And then there's no other useful point guard on the team. So the defensive attention goes, I mean, John Collins, when Trey young was out and they didn't have a backup point guard uh, was the, the, Example I could think of. So John Stockton, I don't think they went as in-depth in, with him as I would have liked, you know, with those Utah teams. They didn't really cover, you know, how hit their regular season went other than the win-loss totals. But I thought it was a pretty big ego from a guy who, you know, was playing the best ever. But I think that's what you need in the NBA. Like, you can't be scared of playing the great players because there's so many of them.
4: I think that is yeah I definitely think that's true I also think uh sort of an interesting thing about Malone is that he would be a center now and he would be amazing like as a as a center who could work in the pick and roll like that and who could shoot you know like like let's let's say like 20 footers 18 footers like he like a lot of teams would be very happy to have him at this point right like You know, a center who can make jump shots and and rebound and move the floor like Malone. We think of him as as an offensive player, but he was a pretty good defensive player. You know, again, you know, just going off. I'm not saying I've scouted a ton of 1998 jazz games, but his like defensive win shares numbers and everything are are pretty solid. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think he would be a I think Malone would be a player who transitions well to today's game as a center.
5: He was a lot skinnier than I thought he was, too. Like, I remember Carl Malone being a stocky guy, and then they showed him, like, congratulating the Bulls after that 1998 championship, and he was lanky for a big dude. So I went from thinking that he was probably too slow as a power forward, like, wouldn't transfer today's NBA game, to, like, watching more of these highlights and thinking the exact same thing that you did is, like— I'm not high on and I don't think most of analytics is not high on like the Clint Capella's of the world, the guys who are centers, but just really dunk and just have like the the game like three feet away from the basket. I don't think those are the type of centers that translate that well to this game. In fact, I think like power forwards who can play centers are very valuable. And Carl Malone was only 6'9", but can you imagine him in like a death lineup where he could play defense on the biggest guy on the court on one side and come down and be like a LaMarcus Aldridge on the other side? I think Carl Malone is fantastic. His numbers, like I think they would jump out on people. Like we talked about no one on Indiana averaging a ton of fantasy points. Carl Malone – Two different seasons over. Sorry, five different seasons. I undercounted that, averaging over fifty Fanduel fantasy points. How about that for a big man? I mean, Malone was ridiculous, and that's yeah. that was most of the man offense. Yeah,
4: yeah. So one of the to me, I I loved I loved this moment, and I hated this moment. So I I really enjoyed the. You know, Michael's superpower is being able to be present in the moment. And I, you know, I kind of hate when document like documentaries um, tell that instead of show that, because, you know, then a little bit later we get the moment of him playing the piano in his hotel room being like, you know, everyone stop worrying about uh, next year, you know, and and worry about this year, which is, you know, obviously him him being in the moment. But what I was what I was sort of thinking is. Michael is kind of like a superhero in his ability to only focus on literally the direct task right in front of him. And that, that, you know, no one else to my, like, you know, maybe, I mean, maybe Brady has the ability to do this or whatever, right? Like his ability to just be in the one moment is I think his greatest skill.
5: Completely, completely agree. I mean, as a human being, just, just, Think about how many times a day you think of either the past or the future, whether it's, you know, think of you get a little pain in your ankle. Like, what am I going to do about this? Michael Jordan didn't think about little things like that. He was just focused on regardless of how he was feeling, winning a game that night. And I agree with you. I don't like when you they build a guy up like that unless they just show it to you with raw footage. I think that by the piano and hearing Michael Jordan reacting to the media, you know, when they're saying like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do later? What are you going to do later? And he's just like, look, we're, we're celebrating right now, or we're, or we're focused on right now after a loss. Michael was one of a kind. I mean, how else can we verbalize just how fantastic Michael Jordan was and how, how perfect the mindset was for the time, for the team and, just for the game of basketball. It's the reason he's so great. I mean, after quitting, I think his mindset, by the way, after leaving for baseball, I think his mindset was that much more focused when he came back, that he was just like unbreakable after, even after, remember that turnover against the magic and ended up losing the game. Uh, He actually threw away the ball in that. I mean, he was just right back to business after that. So You know, in today's game, I think you'd be hard pressed to find a guy who doesn't at least, you know, you get hard on themselves for like screwing up a final play, having to face the media. And Michael was just we're on to the next game. And that's truly one of a kind.
4: Yeah. And, you know, a lot of a lot of my um, thoughts about Michael or like my, my job during this has sort of been to be a skeptic and be like, you know, LeBron has done this. Durant has done this. Curry has done this. And there's, there's, there's. I mean, there's many moments that are are completely undeniable. But there is one moment to me that is the most. Just yes, there's nothing, there's nothing impeachable about this moment, and it's that shot in Game Six to win the the final championship. Like everyone in the building knows it's going to him. Pippen hasn't been playing. Jordan has has shot thirty four times up until that point he's exhausted he's got he's had food poisoning i guess or he's hung over or whatever you know uh we we we, i don't know if we'll ever know the truth about what happened in that hotel room in utah and i mean one obviously the jazz really messed up by not bringing the double team there right like you got it you got to bring the double team there but they didn't and yeah you're right michael is like look i know i know if i go this way Russell is gonna go off his feet, and and did he push off? Yeah, I mean he pushed off a little bit, but hitting that shot in that moment, everyone knows it's coming. He's exhausted. The whole emotional weight of that moment, knowing that this is very likely, if he hits this shot, gonna be the last basketball game he ever plays, the last shot he ever takes. Uh, you know, he, he the the Washington Wizards are not even a gleam in his eye. That shot is to me that shot and the Ray Allen shot to win uh, the, the, the Heat's championship. I think those are the two best shots in basketball history to me.
5: Yeah, and I actually have more of an appreciation for it, knowing that Reggie Miller, that shot that he hit, basically pinballing off Michael Jordan earlier in the playoffs and them not calling it, and and him hitting the final shot, like Michael Jordan then doing somewhat of a pinball later in the playoffs, having the scouting report on the guy, knowing he's beaten him before doing the same thing, it just gave more of an appreciation to the context of the shot. Like, you can't be mad about the Michael Jordan shot and not be mad about that Reggie Miller shot that cost the Bulls one of the games earlier in the playoffs. I I don't think you can have, like differing opinions about those two shots and Michael had to suffer from that Reggie Miller shot. And, Regardless of how you feel about it, I think the mindset of Reggie Miller and Larry Bird basically spoke to what Michael said, is make the officials make a call at that big moment. If they want to ruin that moment, you know, let them have the, the fortitude to do so. And it's very unlikely that that will be the case. So, Michael, giving him a little bit of a stiff arm doesn't bother me as much as it bothers most, especially after you see what Reggie Miller did to him earlier in the same playoffs.
4: All right. need you to answer this question for me. If the Bulls bring everyone back, do they win? Do they win number 7? And and do you think that Pippen comes back with them?
5: So, I think if everyone is back, they have a very good chance. I think the answer if I had, you know, gun to head answer, the answer is yes. Do I think Pippen comes back? Unfortunately, I don't with the way his contract was.
4: Yeah. I I think the the answer is it would have been very hard for them because they're, you know, another year older Kerr's another year older Jordan's another year older Pippen pretty much in his prime though. Like he would struggle with injuries, you know, off and on for the rest of his career, pretty much. So we never know. I, I think the answer is they probably do because the jazz are heartbroken. I mean, maybe, maybe the Pacers, but you know, the, the lockout shortened season probably would have helped them as well in terms of, of not grinding them to, uh to dust. So, Everyone, uh, that's our, our last dance discussion. We'll be back in a few moments with some KBO chat in our final segment.
6: Dailyrodo.com. Learn from the game's best DFS players. We don't just give you premier advice. We play every day. All major sports, all year round, we never stop. Industry leading DFS tools and custom projections. And now the DailyRodo.com Optimizer. In minutes, build an optimized lineup for cash games and tourneys. Learn from the game's best DFS players. Join dailyrodo.com.
0: If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick.
2: to start listening.
4: All right, everyone. Hello, and welcome into our final segment here on the Daily Roto Hour on Sports Grid TV. I'm Davis Maddock, joined by Ricky Sanders. Spent our first three segments breaking down ESPN's Last Dance. Heading into our uh, our new favorite gambling obsession in our final segment here, the KBO. And Ricky, now that we have uh, you know a multi-sample sizing for a lot of these starting pitchers, we thought today you know a good conversation to have would just be you know which of these starting pitchers are good, uh, which of them are bad, and which ones do we do we not? No yet so which picture do you think is the best in the kbo
5: so it's a little bit of a tough conversation because we have a small sample size this year and yeah to me casey kelly showed last year that he certainly had the potential to be but then he just got absolutely rocked in his first outing uh, and so for us at this point to say, like, a guy who one of his starts has been absolutely terrible, and that's like 50% of the sample, it's really hard to go there. The guy who has looked the most consistent has been Chang Moku. Who is the guy that fangraphs projected to be the leader in terms of, of K-9 in this league. And if you've watched him, you would know why. His guy has pinpoint control with some nasty breaking balls. Uh, I think Cheng Moku is the guy who is the likeliest to be the next carryover to the MLB. If he so chooses, I think there will be certainly some MLB interest. This is one of the few guys in this league who looks like he can miss bats on a consistent basis. We have seen some other guys be extremely inconsistent so far, who we expect to be top-tier guys, but I think Koo has been the best of the bunch.
4: Yeah, I think that is I think that is likely true. So uh, for those of you who aren't uh, up at 4 o'clock in the morning sweating the KBO with us, uh, Changmo Koo has pitched 14 innings. He has 18 strikeouts, only three walks. He's faced 49 total batters, a K rate of 36 percent, Ricky. Uh, I mean, this is this is really a plus level stuff. I mean, I I think he has been I think there's no way you can say he hasn't been one of the most fantastic pitchers in baseball, essentially uh, in, in KBO.
5: So, he's basically a prospect. And the reason I've been like hesitant to just crown him is because you look at his last few years of sample, over those last two years, a 1 4 whip, you know, 21.9% K rate. It's not exactly what it is now, but he was only 22 last year. So, we're talking about like a 23 year old pitcher who could easily be hitting his prime. I'm a lot more willing to crown him as a guy who has sort of figured it out than I am as someone like, Wu Chan Cha uh, on LG, who looked like, you know, he had figured it out through two starts, but you saw this extensive sample over the course of the last two years, basically over 300 innings of mediocrity. And he's, he's 33 years old now. So, I mean, a young kid, I think it's completely different. And because, you know, projections have been on his strikeout stuff for a while, I think it's okay to start crowning Chang Moku as opposed to some of these other pitchers who have had like a pretty solid two-start sample size. But I think we still need to be skeptical of most. So
4: I actually have a counter argument. I think that Chang Moku is probably the second best pitcher in the KBO. Uh, I also don't think your boy Casey Kelly is the first, though. Do you do you care to wager a guess who I think the uh, the best pitcher in the KBO is? Probably Nick Kingham would be my guess. Kingham King- is good, but my answer is Audrey Sommer Despagne. And I think the reason why he is going to be so good in this league relative to league average is he throws a ton of off-speed stuff and it didn't work in major league baseball at all. His curveball and his off-speed stuff just got destroyed by major league hitters because there are not loads of, you know, power hitters sitting here in uh, you know, in the KBO. It's a lot of it's a lot of contact hitters. It's a lot of guys who, you know, really want to grind out walks and stuff like that. The fact that he can throw his off-speed stuff for strikes and the fact that he can you know, generate whiffs with his off-speed stuff in the KBO that he was not able to generate in Major League Baseball, you know, lead me to believe that his early results, uh, you know, 18 strikeouts in 17 innings pitch, only two walks, uh, you know, uh, a really healthy K-rate. I, I basically think he is for real in this league in a way that, you know, he never could have been in Major League Baseball.
5: Yeah, he has a one 9 fifth through three starts in the KBO, does Despaigne? I, I think I buy your argument. I'm just happy you didn't go Raul Alcantara, by the way, after one good start. Um, no, he, he is. A, he's a weird one to figure out. Yeah, but Despaigne, he's got multiple breaking balls, too. So he is going to be a tough guy to figure out in this league. You look at in 2019 with the White Sox. Here was his pitch discrepancy. Um, 38% straight fastballs, 20.5% cutters. 15.3% sinkers. So he still has that pitch that translates, but 11% sliders and 7.9% curve balls. And that's before we even talk change So a one, two, three, four, five, six pitch mix. And if you've just watched from an eyeball perspective, he's throwing more than that in terms of breaking balls in this KBO, because it's not a pitch that they're accustomed to. And he was over a 30% K rate through his first two starts. I agree. His stuff is going to play here, I'm just not sure if there's going to be an adjustment period after, you know, the, the first wave of there's been no, no sample size on him. I think I believe that guys like Nick Kingham are slightly better, like pure pitchers. But I guess in a contact league, there is a scenario in which Despaigne can eke it out. I played Despaigne each time in Daily Fantasy. Oh, yeah. So so I'm not like anti Despaigne. I'm just not sure that he's going to be the best over a longer period.
4: Yeah, I mean, maybe that's true, right? So maybe, maybe we're we're four months into the KBO season, and uh, everyone knows, like, you know, this dude's gonna, this dude's literally gonna throw a ball that breaks like sixty percent of the time. I mean, you know, there's a reason that major league pitchers can't get away with that, despite breaking balls generally being harder to hit. It's that when the batter knows a breaking ball is coming, that ball just is moving so much slower than a fastball that it's just much much easier to generate positive contact with. So I can I can maybe see it not working out over the course of the season. But for right now, uh, I'm going to I'm gonna keep writing our boy, Odryer Sommer.
5: Yeah, and I want to mention a different pitcher, by the way, because this is one for daily fantasy and for betting purposes, I think we need to know. And this is why stats kind of suck sometimes. Have you seen Jung Hyun Park of the SK Wyverns? He is a guy whose numbers look mediocre on paper, but he is a Chad Bradford-style submariner who is a starting pitcher. He uh, His last start struck out seven LG twins in five innings. He has an 11-3 to K-to-walk ratio so far. I stacked an offense that I think it was LG that last time who was, besides Su Kim and Ramos, was mostly right-handed offense. And it looked like a guy who had been mediocre as of late. But seeing that context completely changed how I feel about this pitcher. So I think you're going to find some, like, you know, uh, spreadsheet warriors who develop a picture or or an opinion about these pitchers and haven't watched them. But knowing that Jung-Kun Park is a righty sinker baller, I think this is a guy that we're just targeting Offenses that are left-handed heavy against. He is so difficult to figure out from a right-handed perspective. If you have the time, it's J-O-N-G-H-O-O-N or H-U-N, depending on what site you look at Park. Go look at some video of him because his throwing motion, I've never seen it from a starter before.
4: All right. Uh, what about uh, some of these other American imports? We have uh, Drew Drew Gagnon, uh, Eric Jokic, Drew uh, uh Chris Flexen. Even which who are some of these guys who are you know proven to you that they belong or or that they aren't as good as we thought?
5: So Eric Jokic is a guy who has impressed me so far. Uh, former short time Cub pitcher. Look over the last two years, three one three ERA in this league. That's played very well. One one three WHIP. These guys with the low WHIPS in you know in the one ones are just very difficult to find in this league. And Eric Jokic, a lefty who pounds the strike zone, he's clearly a guy who you want to be targeting against lefty heavy lineups. He also throws a ball with some sink on it, so I think he should generate some ground balls. I think he's absolutely legit. Uh, I already mentioned Casey Kelly. Dan Straley's one I'm not sure what to make of because he was so poor in his final year in the majors and he had a mediocre first start and then. You know, we weren't sure what to make of him. Was that terrible Dan Straley going to come to the KBO? He had that 11K, maybe the best-pitched game of any game so far in the KBO, his second time out, where he was dropping that curveball. I think it's kind of a knuckle curve. And he was adding a sinker in. And then he was back to mediocrity last game. So I think Dan Straley is a guy who I expect, especially in Marlins Park, I expected him to be a usable fantasy pitcher in the majors for a while. So I expect him to be good here. But we've seen way too wild of a sample size to, like, know how we feel about him. Uh, I think Drew Osinski is a guy who's struggling so far. He's a guy who's another one. If you're, like, a spreadsheet guy, his numbers over the last few seasons are going to look good. But he has had some trouble. He has given up a ton of rocket base hits, not just base hits. I mean, that last game against him, a bunch of them were well-struck balls. So I'm not sure what to make of him. It's turning out that it's a case by case basis in this league in terms of like the American pitchers. In general, yeah. they're better, but I thought it was going to be like we're just starting American pitchers. Yeah, that like, is not like the Drake
4: case. Jake and the and the, the the domestic pitchers like are no good, but like David Buchanan has just been bad. Like he just has not yeah. been a he just has been a guy you'd stack against as opposed to starting him whereas, you know, Chang Moku has been Really good. Um, you know, there have been there have been a couple, you know, really, really good uh, uh, domestic pitchers in the KBO. So, yeah, I think it is you know important to, you know, as much as possible do case by case stuff, though. We are still sort of working. We're feeling around in the dark in terms of, you know, advanced stats for these guys.
5: Yeah. And I should note that David Buchanan spent a few seasons in the Japanese league and he was absolutely horrible. The guy who doesn't miss bats just because he's American doesn't mean he's a guy you need to be targeting. He is he is bad. I think he's a guy you want to stack against most of the time.
4: Yeah, I think that uh, I think that is probably true. Uh, And then, you know, kind of what about uh, what about Jake Brigham and William Quavos? Where are they at on our list right now?
5: So Cuevas is an interesting one. Uh, I mean, he's been a mixed sample guy so far as well. I think his stuff, I mean, we saw last year, he had a relatively solid sample. 3.62 ERA, although the FIP was higher. This year, basically one decent start and one not-so-good one, and he has a 5.58 FIP through two games. He's not a guy who throws, like, insanely hard, Um, I mean, we've talked about flexing with his fastball being like 94 and Cuevas was a guy in the majors, even like 91 was his average fastball there. So I think he's a good, not great pitcher. I saw his 117 whip last year. I saw he had, you know, uh, 17, almost 18% K rate close to double digit walk rate. He looked okay. Uh, He looks like a pitcher who's going to have struggles along the way. So I don't think Cuevas is going to be an overly dominating pitcher. I think he's more of like a number two pitcher in this league. I
4: think that that seems about accurate. So everyone, thank you very much for watching the Daily Roto Hour here on Sports Grid TV today. Uh, Davis Matic and Ricky Sanders have been with you discussing the last dance. Uh, If you haven't watched it yet, all you got to do is, you know, Log on. I think it's going to be on Netflix here in uh, like a week or two. So I would definitely encourage all of you to do that. I would encourage all of you to be playing KBO DFS on DraftKings and FanDuel and wagering on them on uh, online sports books as well. We will be back tomorrow with even more uh, grinding uh, content for you guys gambling DFS. See you guys soon.
6: DailyRoto.com
2: start listening.